Hi, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Attendance Bias. I am your host, Brian Weinstein. Today's guest is my friend George from Astoria, Queens. For today's episode, George chose one of the most epic fish shows of all time and a true milestone in their career, December 30th, 1994 at Madison Square Garden. As you'll hear us mention several times throughout today's conversation, this was Fish's first time playing at MSG. You'll hear the excitement both in their playing from the clips I chose and in George's memories of the night. George is a native New Yorker, and even though MSG was his second home since childhood, it didn't take away from the novelty of seeing our little Vermont band take over Manhattan for the night. Pretty soon, after a couple more episodes, the entire 1994 holiday run will be covered on this podcast, and I'm completely thrilled to help break down this all-time great run in Fish's history. Thank you, George, for doing your part, too. So let's join George to talk about the thrill of being a Rangers fan in 1994, Fish at SUNY Buffalo, and how one song can contain an entire year's worth of jamming as we discuss Fish's performance on December 30th, 1994 at Madison Square Garden. George from Astoria, my down-the-block neighbor, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Happy New Year. Thank you, and to you too. And speaking of New Year's, You chose a holiday run show, one of the more celebrated ones. It seems to be a trend lately on the podcast, even if I don't release it in this order. A lot of people in recent interviews have chosen holiday run shows. I guess it's just in the season. And yours was Fish's first show at Madison Square Garden, December 30th, 1994. It most certainly was. uh, Listen, 1230... Just the date, the four numbers in general are are pretty powerful, pretty mythical in fish history. So I was lucky enough to be at this first show at Madison Square Garden. And I can't wait to hear about it because it's come up in in prior episodes. The the show has, although we haven't covered it in total, people have mentioned uh, 123094. It's it's come up a number of times uh, with um, Tom Marshall. We talked about the night before. This episode, 1229.94, at least the David Bowie from it. I don't know, just a lot of good aura surrounds this show. It was also one of my first tapes ever, so I have that personal connection to it. So, George, before we get to Madison Square Garden and fish at Madison Square Garden, let's get to know you as a fan, and it's time for the Attendance Bias Lightning Round. Attendance Bias Lightning Round. So, George, when was your first fish show? My first show was April 10th, 1994 at Alumni Arena on the campus of the University of Buffalo. It's a show that almost didn't happen. Uh, Trey fell through a hole in the stage during sound check and uh, tore up, I think his ankle, tore up his, uh, his, his leg really bad. And the show was delayed quite a bit, but he ended up just playing the whole show sitting down and uh, got behind the drum kit for Fishman to do a rendition of I Want to Be Like You from the Jungle Book, which was great. And so, yeah, it was a great first show. And they also played In a Hole that night. Oh, wait, so you went to the University of Buffalo, too? I did. Oh, listen, same profession, same (laughs) neighborhood, you know, same alma mater. It's a shame we haven't met before then, but better late than never, right? Absolutely. Wow. (laughs) So I feel like I was probably there a little bit before you, though. Possibly. We'll talk about that off, off mic. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, what was your most recent fish show? Uh, my most recent fish show was December 1st, 2019 at Nassau Coliseum. 
I was there too. What'd you think of that show? It was all right. I, it, it, the weather was brutal. It was, yeah, it was. I remember just even just getting there and then just waiting, the waiting outside. Sometimes you wait outside. It's not a big deal, but the weather was horrible. It was rainy. It was cold. Uh, when I got in, I found out the ticket that I had bought was a uh, counterfeit or fake. I oh. ordered it through a uh, StubHub. And so they had to march me through the most crowded hallway imaginable to the ticket office where thankfully they just let me buy another seat. I dealt with StubHub later, got to see the show. I, it was a good show. I mean, looking back now at the last fish show that I've seen, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I was there. Yeah. You know. Overall, what's your favorite song? At least today, uh, what's your favorite song? Overall, my favorite song today and every day is Reba. I've only gotten, I think, two Rebas in the, the 20 shows that I have seen. My favorite all-time fish moment is a Reba, uh, October 25th, 1995. Uh, especially the jam. Martinsburg? No, I think it's Minneapolis. Okay. Wrong on that. Um, it is just the jam in that version of Reba is everything that is right to me about fish and everything that I love about the band. And so right. that is my favorite. All right. Well, after this, my post-dinner music will be to look up that Reba and give oh, it a listen. I have not yet heard it. Thank you. Talking about venues, what's your favorite indoor venue? Oh, my favorite indoor venue is MSG. It's basically been a place that I've been to more than most places in New York outside of the homes that I lived in growing up and <laughs> some of the schools I went to. Attendance bias and local bias it has to be MSG. What is your favorite outdoor venue? My favorite outdoor venue that I've been to to see fish is Randall's Island. Uh, they played there in 2014. I caught the first and third nights. Me too. I missed there the second go. night. I had a wedding. Um, <laughs> this is getting weird. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny. I don't remember why I didn't go to the second night, but uh, Randall's Island is as close of a walk. I was able to walk to both shows and uh, walked over the Triborough Bridge, which was uh, very interesting to say the least as, as far as getting to a, a show especially on high winds. Um, yeah, Randall's Island is just a great place. I wish they would come back there. Maybe this summer, if the band happens to hear this episode. I have confidence that Trey himself listens to every single episode of Attendance Bias. So I know he's listening right now. Make it happen, Trey. So make it happen, Trey. Get back to Randall's Island. I absolutely love those shows. To me, there wasn't an official festival in, nine, in uh, 2014, but to me, that was the default festival. You know, they had the Ben and Jerry's tastings. They had take a picture with Nectar where they had the cutout of Nectar Morris. Yeah. They had uh, the, the local uh, food trucks. I think Crift Dogs, the hot dog place had their own. Yeah, food truck. I, I, yeah. And it was just I that wide open field. from them. Yeah, they had all the food trucks up there. They had all the local breweries. Right. Like foam. Each, each borough had a brewery like, you know, competing with each other. Yeah, I remember that. That was great. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. They should come back to Randall's Island and Bethel Woods. Let's just do an all New York State summer tour. Between Madison Square Garden, Nassau, the new UBS arena, a couple ballparks, probably this could probably do the entire summer tour just around New York City. And I'd be at every single show. Yeah, they can go back to Alumni Arena. They could. <laughs> Actually, yeah, they could. I haven't been, you know, I haven't been up to Buffalo in a very long time, but if, if, if one needs a reason. Are there any songs that you're chasing? You've been seeing fish since 94. Any that any classics you haven't seen? Forming Coil. Wow, really? Because 94, they were playing that like every other minute. 
Yeah, I know, but I only saw I only saw two shows in '94, and so uh, 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 my my selection was limited. But uh, yeah, I would say Squirming Coil. I I just love the song, and just that be able to see Paige by himself closing out the song would just be wonderful. So Trey, if you're listening, next show I'm at, Squirming <laughs> Coil at Randall's Island. And what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen at a fish show? <laughs> um, BB King. Uh, uh, that's at the Meadowlands, right? Yeah, BB King, uh, d- February twenty fourth, two thousand three. Show starts off with a great now a disease. Uh, Karina gets played, and then they bring out BB King. The crowd goes nuts. And listen, it wasn't bad, but it kind of just—it was a solid hour of just three blues tunes that just kind of dragged a little bit. And and I think they were all waiting for for BB King to really take over with a great solo and I, he was just a little restrained not to go back and listen to the tapes, but yeah, seeing BB King with fish was, was a little strange. I've heard parts of that section. I remember when it happened, I was in Buffalo actually in 2003 in that February tour. And I remember seeing the set list and thinking to myself, wow, I must've missed something really special. I must've missed something incredible because I saw BB King I think it was 1998 at the Westbury Music Fair, speaking of New York venues. And I thought, oh, my God, this is like a meeting. Like Jerry Garcia may as well have came on to guest. Like that's, you know, the legendary status of B.B. King as a blues guitarist with Trey and my favorite current guitarist. And then when I started hearing that it wasn't outstanding, that it didn't live up to the expectations that it would set on paper, I was so confused. And when I hear you say that, that he seemed restrained, I wonder if it's because he was used to playing venues that are much more intimate, such as the, yeah. the Westbury Music Fair, which if, for anyone listening who may not know, it's a small theater. The maximum capacity is probably, I don't know, maybe 1,600, maybe less even, maybe 1,200 on Long Island. And it's a small theater in the round. And so if that's where his comfort zone is, playing to a sold out arena of loud party raucous fans probably stunned him a little bit. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. I was like, maybe he just was kind of like a little overwhelmed by the moment. And, you know, with all due respect to, to BB King, it wasn't, it wasn't bad, but it, it, it left a lot. It left a lot to be desired. I feel like the band was egging him on to like really take over and rip a solo. And it just wasn't there. When was this show played? So the 94 Fish Holiday Run was the traditional four shows as it normally is. But this was well before they would play all all four nights in the same venue. I don't think that really started until maybe even 98. Because even in 97, they played in Maryland, I think it was, before they played three shows at the Garden. This is Fish's first show at the Garden. This run was the 28th to the 31st, split between... Philadelphia, which is a show I've never heard before on the 28th. So maybe that'll be my after after dinner music. Uh, The Providence Civic Center, which is a major show that was covered, like I said, by Tom Marshall and myself on an earlier episode. Today's show at the Garden and then New Year's Eve at the Boston Garden, which was the debut of the famous hot dog, the flying hot dog. Uh, Did you go to any of those other shows? No, only Madison Square Garden. I was not a, a licensed driver in 1994, so uh, I was pretty limited in my options as far as going to see the show, and MSG is just a couple train stops away. 
And one of the many characteristics, when we think back to Fish in 1994, were really long, experimental, often abstract jams where if you didn't follow it or you couldn't follow it, you might have just walked out. Like It was where you could really make or break a Fish fan with songs like Tweezer or certain parts of You Enjoy Myself. But at the same time, it could be really straightforward and rocking. And you would just feel like you're witnessing the greatest musical moments that ever occurred in the history of electric music. And both of those were on display on this run, but also in this show. Yeah, um, as, as I'm a, a huge fan of first sets uh, to the point where I love a good first set as much as a second set. I know the second set is usually where the band takes off and you get more exploratory jams. And as much as I love that, I do appreciate a nice, tight, rocking first set, uh, 12, 30, 94. In fact, all of 94. Uh, the first sets, just because the band just, they practice, they're on point. The composition pieces are nailed perfectly with high speed, intensity, you know, accuracy. You know, not as many flubs as people might complain about now. Just, just the band was nailing it and they were firing on all cylinders. And it seemed like in 94, Sparkle was in every single one of those first sets. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And it's not my favorite Fish song, but I do appreciate it. According to Fish.com, this entire holiday run was very windy and very, very cold. Uh, but in Philly, the band dropped teases of Auld Lang Syne and Little, Little Drummer Boy. Um, almost everyone knows about the David Bowie from the 29th in Providence. What was that? I said, as they should. Yeah, as they should. And if you don't pause this podcast right now, I usually yeah. don't say that, yeah, but pause it right listening. now. Yeah. Stop. Go right, go right to the belly. Yeah. But then come back and listen. Come back. And <laughs> yeah. Because <finish. laughs> you got to hear about the next two shows. Yeah. Uh, so this was the band's first show at the Garden. And fun trivia, they also appeared on David Letterman in the afternoon of the 30th. They played Chalk to Torture. And I think I read in the Fish book that it was at Letterman's request. The rumor is that after the show was over on the 30th, that the band rushed off stage at the garden so they can get backstage in time to watch their appearance on Letterman, you know, before you could get things, quote unquote, on demand. Yes. Yes. This was a, this was a, a different. The, the Internet was young. Yeah. So unless you VCR taped it, you needed to make sure you were there live to see it. So, George, who were you or where were you in December of 94 that led you to this show? Uh, in December of 94, I was uh, a sophomore at the University of Buffalo. I was home for, for winter break. Um, I was coming on 1994. And, and, you know, we talk about, you know, attendance bias. Here's my attendance bias for the show. 94 was a great year. And um, the fact that I ended at MSG is even more more spectacular. I've been, like I said, I've been to MSG. My, my father's a season ticket holder for the Rangers. And I've been going to Ranger games since October, 1975, when I was two months old, my dad took me to Madison square garden for Ranger hockey, Nick basketball. We went to monthly professional wrestling when it was still the WWF, like old school, Bob Backlund, Andre, the giant, Jimmy Star. I've seen roller derby, indoor soccer, arena football. I've seen every possible event you could see at Madison Square Garden. And then we get to fish. 1994 was the year I learned about fish. Um, I was a freshman at the University of Buffalo. A couple of my friends started playing um, 
they would they wouldn't pay play their live tapes because they were very protective about it. So I listened to hmm. I was schooled on albums. So the majority of my introduction to Fish was just listening to the albums. But I got to see my first show in um, April. Uh, the Rangers. I come home from the first year of college completely fish enlightened, and then I spend. Uh, May and June at Madison Square Garden watching the Rangers, which might be one of the only things I love more than fish, win the Stanley Cup. So I've been riding this wave of 94 of just having like one great time after another. And it culminates at Madison Square Garden, Fish's first show, the world's most famous arena. I go with my best friend from my neighborhood and meet up with all my friends from Buffalo. So it's also this convergence of all my new friends that I meet at college, my best friends from home, all of us together celebrating this band that becomes my new favorite band that year. 123094 was just an amazing day. Set one. Let's get into it. So the show kicks off with Wilson. And even if you didn't know this from a note on fish.net, this is the version from a live one. It's familiar right away. My favorite part of this, and I wanted to ask you and how aware you are of this, you could hear people start chanting Wilson, like a couple people here and there. And then by like the fourth time, it becomes a huge crowd roar. Were you familiar with the Wilson chant at the time? And what was it like around you, if you remember? Um, I was from just listening to some earlier tapes. Um, I don't remember much about the crowd around me other than that it was just people that, uh, I kind of went to school with and hung out with, but I mean, yeah, the crowd picked up really quick. Um, I don't think it was a lot of people going, Oh, I don't know what's going on here. Or I don't know what song this is. Yeah. The energy picked up real fast right away. And they followed up with rift. Yes. And it sounds like to me that they're moving a little fast, not a little fast, a lot fast tempo wise. And I, I was wondering if maybe they're getting used to the sound in the room or they were getting overexcited. It just seems like they're, they're like running ahead of themselves a little bit. And there's a moment at four minutes and 40 seconds after they pause and page comes back in with the silence contagious. It just stunned me. That was the last note I wrote down in this. I'm like, yeah. I, I, there's nothing that could top it. In moments like these, consume me and strengthen my will to appease. Passion that sparked me one terrible night, and shocked and persuaded my soul to believe. Shocked and persuaded my soul to Um, yeah, listen, uh, Rift to me is one of my favorite fish songs. And um, this particular, um, going back and listening to the show made me really think about um, Rift in terms of song placement for fish songs in a fish show. Um, we, what I found in the, you know, the last couple of years is, is fish has been playing around with, you know, where songs are placed in shows. 
and um, you know, seeing shows, you know, seeing songs that you wouldn't normally like, for instance, split open a melt in the last couple of years, becoming like a set to psychedelic meltdown closer has been one of my favorite things that the band has done. And a lot of songs I find, you know, you can move around within a set and, and they can have many different effects. But when it comes to the perfect placement of a fish song at a show, to me, it is rift the second song out. Because no matter what you play in an opener, whether you're playing like, you know, MoMA dance or where you may be llama, rift right away, second song, the, the guitar riff come in, and then just, <laughs> just the, the jumpingness and the tempo picking up so quick, it never fails to get fans into the show. You know, they start a show with something slow, you know, people are kind of getting into it, right? they're warming up. But then, then the first notes of that song hits, and then just everybody always gets excited. It's also the title track of my favorite Fish album. I was so, wondering um, if your your affinity for Rift comes from the fact of what you said before that to get into Fish that you were you were given a lot of albums. Yeah, that my my the the, the guy um, who was my main Fish connect, if you will. Like I said, he was very weird about like keeps you can't listen to my tapes. My tapes are precious. And he would just sit on the wall and I would sit in him almost like maybe one day he'll think I'm a good enough fan to take one tape down and hand it to me. But yeah, um, I listened to that album a lot freshman year at the University of Buffalo. So um, all those songs uh, uh, mean a lot to me. But, you know, I just find. And then in this particular rift, the crowd just after first after Trey's first guitar solo, there's a roar from the crowd and then. Page piano solo, another roar from the crowd. Trey kicks back in, another roar. And then, like you said, at, at four minutes and 40 seconds, as silent contagious, the crowd completely loses it. It's, it's kind of like this collective elation. Oh, my God, this is really happening. We're, we're in this giant arena. This is amazing. Yeah, and you're only 10 minutes into the show. Exactly. exactly. It's like we just got here, and it's already amazing. Next up is ACDC Bag, which has really nice giddy-up. It's got a great tempo. And I had the thought while listening to it, like we're so familiar with ACDC back to us. It's a very conventional song, but take an outsider who's never listened to fish or doesn't know much about it. Maybe a season ticket holder, like you said, your dad, uh, who just gets, you know, an opportunity to buy a ticket to every event at MSG and walks in. This is really weird music to be playing at the world's most famous arena. No, um, just, just, you know, if from just a lyrical content alone, you know, for, for a band that gets a little heat about their, their silly lyrics, you know, ACDC bag is right up there. Um, if, if you're not a seasoned fish fan and you come in and maybe you're coming in late because you're, you know, online trying to get a beer or, you know, something like that. This is a, a, a weird song for a, a person to get into fish with. Yeah. But yeah well, I'm, I'm wondering if just, just like you said, Wilson and then Rift having such a high energy to it, it they're just riding that through this ACDC bag because like you said it it's 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 tight it's it's very energetic and um they really get a nice jam out of it you know about halfway through and, and it's a very big in joke I mean two out of those three songs are game head songs yeah after that is Sparkle like we mentioned before very commonly played in 1994 and I wrote down that it's an in-between song in that it's almost like a breather like uh, a short song maybe three and a half minutes for everyone to catch their breath but it's funny to say that for a bluegrass song uh, yeah it's a very first set first set yeah that's a great point it's not slow right it doesn't bring you down but at the same time it's it's nice and easy 
there's not, you know, there's not going to be a big jam out of it. You're not going to have to get too intense with it. It's just like, hey, let's just have fun for a couple minutes and just, you know, just en- enjoy the fact that we're all here. And speaking of bluegrass songs, Simple, the next song, started off as a bluegrass song that Mike was trying to introduce to the band when they were recording Hoist. And it started off as like this country, fast, upbeat bluegrass song, and it developed into the incredible rock song that you and I know now. And this version of it, it really sounds like powerful arena rock, you know, for a really straightforward, basic song. It really sounds powerful. I remember hearing Simple the first couple times and, and for anybody else in 94 that might have heard Simple the first couple times, the minute you heard that opening riff, it, it, even if it was just for a little while, it became your new favorite fish song. <laughs> yeah. It's got the hat. It's got, and it's funny. I didn't know that about the uh, it being a bluegrass song, but I could see it just from like the vocals. Um, it's just such a joyous, happy song. And I think it's a great song to play at Madison Square Garden for the first time. Because like you said, it just develops into this like raging rocker, you know, the the, the riff opening and then just Fish's drums kicking in and then they can just, just start just wailing on it. And in the Fish book, Fishman called the riff from Simple. He calls it something like the greatest riff in Trey's arsenal of riffs. And here we are at this giant monumental milestone arena and they're killing it. Although I will say, because I got to call him like I see him. The vocal harmonies are a bit rough. Who's ever taking that yeah. high end? I'm guessing it's Paige. They're a bit off, but that's part of the charm, I would say, as a fish apologist sometimes. No, I I, I, I would agree with you. Um, the, the vocals on, on there, they, they get a little messy, but I think, um, I don't know, maybe it was nerves. Maybe they're just like, oh, you know, taking in the moment. That's what it sounds like to me, that they're taking in the moment, that they kind of, I don't want to say don't care, but they're kind of put throwing caution to the wind. You know, we don't have to get this perfect. We're here. You know, everyone's already in. Yeah. And after that is Stash, which is, in my opinion, the highlight of the set. Couldn't agree more. Tell me um, your before I go off and talk about my notes. I want to hear from you. You were there. Let's t- tell me about Stash. Um, Stash was one of my first favorite songs. Um, as somebody who has actually attempted to uh, complete the stash clap while getting on and off highways while driving (laughs) my dedication to things. Um, What I remember most from that night was the jam that came out of it. And that kind of jumps ahead for, for the rest of the beginning of of this song, but they rip off. I don't know what, I'm not a guitar gearhead, so I don't know what the effect is, but 
um, once they start getting into the jam, Trey has some sort of effect on his guitar that just takes it into a really psychedelic mode of just it's the guitars just was repeating no wavering up and down pages piano starts just kicking in and starts you know playing just like really like uh, tense chords and then they go into like this middle eastern style jam that just starts building and building and then there's some delay on the uh, the effects and then you just it's like nice whirling dervish music if you will to the point where mm. i was listening last night and i'm like oh my god I forgot how great this jam is. It's the best part of the show. And like, I'm not even paying attention to how seamlessly they transit out of that jam into the end of the song and then into the next song, which we'll get to when we get to it. a lot in this stash and I, I didn't realize until I finished listening to it maybe the second time when I started taking notes down the first time I just listened the second time I listened with my head and Paige seems to run a lot of this he's the point person yeah. his piano is everywhere all over this jam yeah he um age in 94 and even more so in 95 is really coming into his own um and just what he does on the piano for this jam is he literally sets it up so that Trey can just start soaring over everything. He just is laying down a real intense foundation, if you will. And um, yeah, he's definitely driving the, the boat on this jam. And the recording on fish.in is the soundboard. The, the one that I yes. had on tape was not. It was very poor quality. It sounded like it was recorded in someone's like breast pocket. Yeah, it sounded pretty awful. So I never listened to the show that often because I was more of a fan of listening to shows from like 93, 92 and 93, because that's where all the great recordings were. It was easy to find to find a soundboard. So when I went back to listen to this after you chose it, I knew the reputation that it had, but I wasn't able to match that or correlate it with the recording with which I was familiar. So hearing this stash on a soundboard, which really sounds like a matrix on fish.in, it's a beautiful mix. This stash is like you said, it's the jam of the show. It really stands out. Yeah. um, For for, for all you younger fans who simply just wait for fish to put the soundboard up after the show, maybe an hour or two afterwards, Back then, when you really wanted a show, you had to send out tapes. You had to hope the tapes came back in a good quality. And I remember, like, the minute that Christmas, I literally got, like, a giant – my Christmas present that year was a giant box from Terrapin Tapes just filled with, (laughs) 
like Max L's. And I remember sending my tapes out to get a copy of the show and coming back and being so excited. But like you said, the sound quality of the, of the, the source that went around for the show for a long time was just not that good. And so it was really tough to, to get into a lot of those jams again, just because just the mix was so low. So yeah, when I went back too, I was pretty excited that there was a soundboard of it. What is Terrapin Tapes or probably what was Terrapin Tapes? Um, Terrapin Tapes, if I'm correct, was just some sort of head shop slash uh, tape store. Um, I think it was in Connecticut. I don't really remember too much, but they, they sold Maxells by bulk. And so um, I remember my, my parents asked me what I wanted for Christmas. And I literally just said, uh, I gave them this address and I said, I want a box of blank tapes so I can start <laughs> start sending out, um, you know, blanks and postage for shows. Because that's literally the only way you can get to hear live fish back then was, you know, you, you found somebody who was kind enough, usually on rec music fish or the, you know, early email or message groups. And you, you would hopefully, you know, strike up a deal, send them blanks padded envelope postage and then you would just wait by the mail and you know sometimes you didn't get a nice copy of a show for a yeah. couple months till afterwards yeah it was, it, sometimes it was, it was a real back crap then shoot. was a lot more labor intensive yeah and it was a crapshoot yeah. yeah for for all the um complaints that and i'm guilty of complaining about it too but not getting your request granted in the lottery you know it was even less informed you know there wasn't now what I do, because I'm obsessive, I'm such a neurotic that I put notifications on after I send in my um, my request for fish tickets by mail, which is a misnomer anyway to begin with yeah. now. Uh, but I put a notification on my credit card that if there's an online purchase of $50 or more, I want to get a notification. So I know if fish.inc charged my or music, music today charged yeah. my card. Back then, it was almost like you do it you forget about it. And then you're either pleasantly surprised or kind of disappointed because your expectations weren't so high to begin with. After that was scent of a mule, which is oh, good. He comes after. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Fee. I skipped fee. I skipped fee. And then there's scent of a mule. You're right. Uh, I wrote that. It's kind of in the vein of simple. It's always a crowd favorite. And I loved on the recording. I couldn't see it obviously, but you know, when Trey picks up the megaphone, he's a yes. huge cheer monster cheer um it's funny um one of the nice things about 1.0 fish and i'm not gonna you know you know bad mouth any of the other eras of fish but one of the nice things about 1.0 fish is that just your set list every night is 1.0 songs and yeah. you know the songs that they don't play a lot anymore when they were playing a lot regularly fee happens to be a song that i love it's one of the first songs i heard um it was one of these songs where you know i'm coming from um a lot of different music that I listened to pre-fish, but at the time I was listening to a lot of Almond Brothers, uh -huh. a lot of classic rock. And then I get to this song and I'm like, you know, okay, interesting, you know, percussion, just the tone of the guitar, you know, the, the breakdown of the song. I was like, yo, this is amazing. You know, what is it, this completely new sound that I'm hearing? And so it's funny. It's not, it's not a cool down song in the traditional cool down song, but you know, between stash and then the scent that comes after it, it, it just you float a little bit yeah and it's and a story it's, yeah it's, it's a story, story time it's, you're learning something and like you said it's a different type of music the first time i heard fee of course it was my one of my first favorite fish songs because it's an earworm it gets stuck in your head immediately and it's to me it sounded almost like a hotel like a hilton 
a Hilton hotel jazz band in a cocktail lounge with like that little like that kind of thing. But yeah. it's just so addicting. And yet it's so familiar. If, it, if, if a megaphone is being used at the show, you're in for a good time. Agreed. Agreed. And after that, I finally got back on point with Scent of a Mule, which I wrote was good 1994 fun. And then I just, for fun, I looked up the statistics. It was played 44 times in 1994. That's enormous. That's a lot. Some people would be very upset about that. Yeah. Well, you just said the good thing about seeing Fish back then is they played only 1.0 songs, same as it ever was. New songs still annoyed people. Yeah, and I, I, you know, it's funny. I, I feel, and maybe I'm wrong in this. Um, older fans, feel free to, to comment. Um, a lot of fans, I don't know, were really receptive of Hoist at the time. You know, they were coming off, you know, Rift, which is a great album, uh, Picture of Nectar, and 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 Long Boy, and, and all the early albums. Just like it seemed like everything was just fantastically done. And I feel like some people were a little soured by some of the songs on Hoist. I happen to like Son of a Mule. I love the studio version of it. That's got a Bela Fleck with the banjo playing in it and just the, the peak of that song. Um, it was a lot of fun. Son of a Mule was a lot of fun. Um, the the dual jam yeah. that breaks down is, is always a good time. Um, the, the crowd always really gets into it. Um, but yeah, it was played a lot in 94, as a lot of the new songs were. So, Yeah, just a note about Hoist is... Yeah, I think a lot of the the um, the backlash against it, maybe not so much against the songs, but more about the album itself, because it was very slick. It was very professionally produced. And I had Sue Drew on the show. She was Fish's A&R person from, I think, 1991 to 1993. And they were just finishing up a picture of Nectar, I think, when she joined them. And they she was helping them with Rift. And then when they started Hoist, that's when she left. But she was there for kind of like the internal discussions about recording Hoist in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. And that was when, if you remember, 1993 is when they were recording. They, uh, they released it in 94. And that was when jam band music, for lack of a better phrase, was starting to get a little mainstream, right? Dave Matthews hit the big time. Rusted Root was, yes. was on the top of the charts. Uh, the Smooth Travelers. Blues Traveler, right. And so Fish, this was supposed to be their crack at it. And they never fully embraced it, but that's why their producer, Paul Fox, on that album called in the Tower of Power Horns and Alison Krauss and tried to make this sound, quote-unquote, better and more professional than all the previous Fish albums did before because Electro Music wanted, well, everyone's going to want to listen to Sample in a Jar and Down With Disease. And I'm sure the, the record companies saw all these other uh, bands, jam bands, if you were bands of that ilk, making it big. And, you know, back then, record sales dictated, you know, the profit of everything. You know, back yep. then, you know, there was no streaming. You know, you, you paid $15 for, for your CD, and that's how everybody uh, made their money. So I'm sure that Electra wanted their big, you know, hit that all these other, you know, Rusted Root was getting and, and Blues Travel was getting. Like you said, Dave Matthews was getting really popular around that time. And so I'm sure they wanted uh, they wanted Fish to to do something similar. And to close the set, which is a very short first set, it's only 56 minutes. Was mm-hmm. Cavern, and it, even though it's only 56 minutes, it was packed. Like it was packed pretty tight. Like I take I'll take a short first set like this for the longest song as we 
discussed at length with Stash and full of just pounder after pounder. Awesome, awesome, awesome. As opposed to like a 90-minute set from 2009, let's say, which is a little bit directionless and directionless and more material to sort through. I'll take this over quality over quantity, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, this was this was concentrated fish. Yeah. This was, yep. it's, it's not it's not diluted. And listen, I I could I could listen to Cabernet. I could have Cabernet at every show I go to. It is a song. It's it's just got a great opening. Um, I just happen to love this song. It always makes me happy. It always closes out big. It, I've seen it open shows. I've seen it close sets. I've seen it close shows. It never disappoints. It was definitely a great way to end a really tight, intense, fun first set. Set two. And the second set opened, talking about hoist, the second set opened with sample in a jar, which is a killer set opener. We don't usually get it as a second set opener anymore. But like we just talked about, 94 was the year of hoist. And you said you only saw two shows that year. But had you seen more, I'm sure Down with Disease, Julius, Scent of a Mule, Wolfman's Brother, Sample, like it was guaranteed. You would hear yeah. one or two at every show. And the guitar solo at the end of this, it's almost exactly the album version of Sample in a Jar, but that doesn't make it any less powerful, especially at Madison Square Garden. Funny, um, uh, sample sample gets a lot of grief from some fans now, but back in '94 and I think in '95, like people were generally really into sample. They they loved it. It was like you said, it's it's got a it's a rocking song, and this particular version's got the great solo. And so, yeah, it's a great it's a great set opener. And you know, there's some nice loud arena rock, you know, to keep things going. And then after sample, we get into Poor Heart, almost like Sparkle, another bluegrass song which is a really good balance of big, loud songs and breather songs, even though this is one of the fastest they have. It still felt like a break after Sample in a Jar, even though, and I'll ask, I'll defer to you on this, I'm fully aware that it may not have felt like that at the Garden after Sample in a Jar. You were probably, probably had energy coming out of your ears. Yeah, I mean, listen, Sample was rocking, and then, like, Poor Heart playing a similar role to Rift, a really upbeat song to get the crowd moving again in the second set for, for a show in the biggest city in the world. There's a lot of bluegrass. There's a lot of bluegrass of 12, 30, 94, if you will. In between, New York um, city, in New York city, the blue, the unofficial bluegrass capital of the world. The next song is the big jam of the set. Yes. Right. Tweezer is, I think something around 23 minutes. I listened mm-hmm. to it earlier today because this is graduate level 
fish. This is yeah. very 1994. If people usually talk about the New Year's run as a culmination of the music of the year as a whole, if you had to dilute all of 1994 or Fish's style 94 to one song or one jam, this tweezer would be it. Yeah. And this is coming off a year of some pretty intense, like epic tweezers. Um, this doesn't get, you know, maybe like you said, the the, the Bozeman tweezer, it, this one maybe doesn't get the press, if you will, that that one does. But um, this is a really solid tweezer, very all over the map, all over the place. It's rocking. There's a, uh, probably a lot more solo piano in this tweezer than um, you might normally get. Yeah, Paige really runs things again here. Yeah. Trey contributes with like power chords. And to me, this kind of balances or maybe even it foreshadows what is to come in certain parts of 1995. Paige is very heavy on it, uh, but powerful, not just heavy. He doesn't just play a lot. He plays very uh, with a lot of strength also. And then Trey has big rhythm chords, like power chords that hint at what's to come in 95. And then they break down into this like nonsense experimentation, abstract music that we mentioned before. And I thought how interesting that that crazy David Bowie was played just the night before. And it has a lot in common. They're not as this one isn't as wacky as that one. Right. It's it's a little shorter by about maybe seven or eight minutes, which in fish jam time is like an eternity. But they they, they do share some DNA. Yeah, is uh, this one is. Like you said, it's it's a little shorter than the Bowie, but um, they definitely. And I think about like the the tweezer I saw the following June in Canandaigua, the forty four minute. Just this clearly like started to plant the seeds of that, and that you know it, it just completely going all over the place, you know, from rocking out real hard uh, to Trey just ripping it. To, like you said, him just like really being paying attention to being a rhythm guitarist on a lot of this jam and just supporting like Paige's work. And then just like you said, near the end, the band just decided, Hey, we're all just going to play our own thing and then come back together. And,
And there are parts that I I wonder if it would work at the garden now. Like they, at about 10 and a half minutes in, there's a part where it's like very, very quiet. And I think Trey might have even dropped out or maybe that's closer to the end. But there's a part where everyone is very, very quiet. And at least according to the recording, the crowd is too. I wonder if they could play as quiet and experimental now as they did back then. What do you think? Um, That's a good question. Um, I don't think so. I think just now... Um, this I feel like now trying to play this now would you'd be inviting the the spontaneous clapping that might start um, possible wooing and listen I'm not opposing any wooing or clapping you know whatever makes people happy at a show but um, trying to like you said that moment where the, they just get real quiet and, and just you know use the silence in the jam I don't think they could probably pull that off now. My favorite part of this whole thing though is right around that same time right after it gets real quiet. Trey gets really heavy on the guitar and it turns into this like swing version of big black furry creatures from Mars. Yeah, Do you know right. the part I'm yeah. talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like, I think what about 10, 12 minutes in. Yeah. It's right in between that time. Yeah. Yeah. Then back again, because they're on 17 minutes, it's everyone just playing whatever they want, this kind of mishmash. And before I heard, got to the end of it, I looked at the, the timer and I'm like, all right, there's only maybe three minutes left in this track. I guess I'm just going to kind of peter out. But they don't. They make it back home to Tweezer. Like, they pulled it out. I couldn't believe they crossed home plate. And then after that, they probably play the most grounded song of the whole of the whole show in I'm Blue, I'm Lonesome. You know, I've, I, I overuse this phrase, but it's like another breather. Like, but I needed it because that tweezer, like it yeah. was so cerebral and weird. I needed something that I could just not think about and enjoy. Yeah, um, you know, this is listen, it, there's a lot of reasons why Fish is uh, a lot of our favorite band. And the fact that they can go from that tweezer to just all over the map, exploratory, and then just a wall of noise, if you will. And then they get, and they're all sitting there at the front of the stage, acoustic instruments, and we're going to play just this old timey bluegrass song. And that, um, and I remember actually the crowd, especially um, when, when Paige would hit his notes, the crowd really was fired up by um, the fact that they can break out this old timey song in the middle of Manhattan is just why this band is great. And it was on acoustic instruments, right? Yeah, it was all acoustic. And, you know, once again, um, the fans knew to stay quiet 
and it was just a, it was a nice hush. You know, you have this massive arena, full crowd, and we're all quiet as watching these four guys around one mic with acoustic instruments, just just you know strumming along. And then the next song is their is the song they play. You enjoy myself, which you talked about placement before with Rift. Today, this would close the set. Maybe not timing wise, but they would save it for the end. This is not the end. There's more to come right after this. And it's a really solid, tight, good, you enjoy myself. I loved it. It's, you know, again, a lot of good page playing here on the organ this time instead of the piano. And it's, it's much less disjointed. It's not entirely tight all the time, but it's not exactly like the tweezer either. This must've felt great though. Do you remember you enjoy myself for the first time at Madison square garden? I do. And it's funny to me, this was almost like where they were in their victory lap. It's like, you know, we, 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 we totally nailed the show. We, we've reached probably a, a professional peak of the band. Um, and also back in, in 94, you know, in terms of like major jam vehicles, you know, songs where you knew the band was going to really go off. I mean, you know, we're spoiled these days. We have so many other opportunities, we, you know, where a band, you know, the band might take a song like, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. But back in 94, it was Tweezer. It was David Bowie from the night before. It was You Enjoy Myself and maybe occasionally Mike's song. So the fact that you got their two monster, you know, jam vehicles in one set with Tweezer and You Enjoy Myself was just, just you know, you, you were very lucky that night. minutes yeah uh, they were only off i think by like four or five seconds i think one was like <laughs> yeah. 2315 one was 2318 or something so the fact that you got their their two big monster songs in one night was uh really special but yeah this it was a uh, this you enjoy myself was fantastic it was uh, you know he said it wasn't all over the place like some of the others were and um i definitely agree with you page uh page definitely might have been the mvp of the show I would say so. Yeah. And um, his organ work is fantastic. The whole song is great. Yeah. My notes, just a selection of my notes. If I highlighted certain parts, some phrases, love this exclamation point. I would be Mm -hmm. freaking out if I were there at this part. Some of my favorite fish love this too. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, you pretty much you, you you put it all on the page right there. I mean, that's 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 pretty much it. And if you enjoy myself as a victory lap, the next song 
was pouring champagne or Gatorade all over yourself. (laughs) Next song might have been their We Are the Champions moment. And they could have played We Are the Champions too, and it would have been quite fitting. Um, As someone who truly loves Prince, and I I was lucky enough to see him in Buffalo in 1997, I think it was, and um, um, he played this that night. Um, You can't get more epic in an arena setting than Purple Rain. And Fishman nails it. It sounds like he's making an effort. Yeah, he's, I, I you know, <laughs> really does. Listen, I mean, when, when Fishman comes out, it's always, you know, you know, funny, you know, it's going to be goofy or whatever. Like I said, I, I got to see him do, I'm all, I want to be like you from the Jungle Book, which, which is just madness. But like he came out and like he really wanted, he cared about this one. I think he really wanted to, um, to take center stage and, and, just give the people what they needed at that point. And I mean, if, if you're going to have a breather and the breather is purple rain, I mean, just what a great set. To me, it's and, and the, I'm sorry. And the, the vacuum solo is really good. And it goes <laughs> with the song, you know, he holds that high note as the, as the, the rest of the band is doing the backing vocals on the way out. Like, it's like, he really, like I said, he put a lot of effort into this one. It's funny when you call it, I've used the word breather so many times and you use this for Purple Rain. To me, Fishman sounds like he's as serious about this as Trey is playing when they when they used to play Life on Mars and Trey wanted to get that guitar solo down at the very, very end. To me, Fishman is putting all of his effort into it. And if not his effort, all of his something. Because about three minutes when it goes to that, I don't want to be all weekend, lover. There's oh, the this- crowd went nuts. It was great. It was like he was auditioning for the band that night. It was like, you, you, you <laughs> want to be in this band, you got to nail this song. And uh, he, he does it all with this one. And you talk about big jam songs or big jam vehicles. What a set. Harry Hood, Tweezer, You Enjoy Myself, and Hood all in one set in 94? Jesus, Uh, man. How spoiled are we? We were spoiled that night, definitely. Um, And it's funny, I I, I was lucky enough. My first show closed with an absolutely amazing Harry Hood. Um, You don't have to stop the episode now, but when you finish listening... (laughs) <laughs> go back to go back to after you, all the other songs we've talked about you know stopping to listen to go back to um april 10 94 and listen to the harry hood that closes out uh the second set in buffalo it is it was uh, my first time hearing harry hood because you know it's not on any album and back then i was uh my 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 live show exposure was very limited yeah, your live um, shows yeah. were behind a glass case and the, uh, the exactly. guy at Toys R Us wouldn't open it for you. No, I, I was I was not worthy yet. But um, <laughs> yeah, what, like you said, what a set. And it's a great version. Like, you know, you know what you're getting with Harry Hood. You're going to get a nice buildup. You're going to get a tremendous peak. You're getting this peak in this arena with this crowd completely at this point celebrating the night.
And then from that right into the most exciting three to five minutes in all of music. Outstanding. Yeah, absolutely. Agreed. They close it with Tweezer Reprise, which is the classic closer. You knew it's coming as soon as they broke into Tweezer earlier in the set. And there's no better way to close it. You all must have left feeling like you just won the Stanley Cup. Literally. And, and, and you know, from the, the, I was in that arena for some pretty intense moments from that spring until that moment. But I mean, that definitely took it like just everybody completely leaving happy. And it, listen, the show was great. It wasn't the longest show that they've played at the Garden, but like there wasn't there wasn't any waste. Not at like all. Everything was tight, intense, and then the closeout with with Tweezer Reprise. You know, everybody went home really happy. But not until after Frankenstein. Not until after Frankenstein. For the encore. You know, why not? If you're going to play arena rock, you might as well, you know, close out with a pretty, like, rocking classic rock song, you know, that gets everybody, you know, gets everybody into it. I remember the train ride home from that night just just because it was my friend's first show and he wasn't a big fan and we're on and I'm, you know that was still in my head and it's just like all right so, so what do you think and he was like oh yeah no it was really good i mean i don't think he's been to any shows since he might have been to a couple of shows that i don't know about but um um leaving that the venue that night was just it was just elation i mean being able to see that I'm seeing my favorite band, seeing it at Madison Square Garden, my favorite place. Just I was like giddy, as many people were leaving that show. And continue to be. And continue to be. George of Astoria, Queens, thanks so much for coming on to talk about this epic show that people have probably taken two hours to listen to this whole episode half to listen to us speaking and the other half to go and listen to the tracks that we called out. Uh, before we go, people can find you on Twitter. What's the handle that they can track you down? I am. Um, my Twitter handle is at macho grande vet. <laughs> You'll um, never get over macho grande. No, my, my, my wounds run pretty deep. So uh, <laughs> you can find me there. If you want to complain about this or, um, you know, celebrate this with me, you know, talk about what it's like to be an old timey fish fan. And Clearly if anybody has any spare blank tapes laying around or spare tapes laying around, um, I, I do still have a tape player that I, I occasionally dust off and uh, play some shows. So feel free to uh, reach out. And that's it for today's interview with George from Astoria, Queens. And although George did really, really well, I had a few mistakes that need to be corrected. So now it's time for the attendance bias fact check. Attendance Bias Fact Check When discussing George's first show on April 10th, 1994 at SUNY Buffalo's Alumni Arena, I brought up the fact that the band played In a Hole to reference Trey's mishap before the show. I was wrong, completely wrong, as the band did not play it, according to Fish.net. I don't know why I thought they did. Maybe I read it somewhere that they played it during soundcheck. I have a vague memory of reading that in the Farmer's Almanac. But I don't know. I was wrong in the end either way. Also, according to Fish.net, Trey stepped through a hole in the stage before the show in Buffalo, tore a ligament, and played the majority of the show sitting on a stool.
One of the shows where George caught Reba was October 25th, 1995. For some reason, I mistakenly thought that the show was played in Spartanburg, South Carolina. It turns out that I was off by a little more than a year. The Spartanburg show that I was thinking of was played on October 29th, 1994, while the show that George saw was played in St. Paul, Minnesota. It opened the second set, and it appeared on Live Bait Volume 12, and it also is on the Fish.net Jam Charts. When talking about the squirming coil, I said that in 1994, they were playing it every other minute. Upon further inspection, Fish played the squirming coil 26 times in 1994 in 124 shows. So maybe not every other minute, but roughly 24% of the time. I made a similar claim about Sparkle being played frequently in 1994. And that time, I was much closer to the mark. It was played 46 times in 1994 out of 124 shows. I brought up the Westbury Music Fair, a small venue on Long Island, and I guessed that the capacity for it was between 1,200 and 1,800 people. According to Wikipedia, the capacity is closer to 2,800. Having been to the theater a large number of times, and I also worked there for a summer, I don't know how that 2,800 number is true. I still hold that it's below. Sorry, Wikipedia. All I was able to find about Terrapin Tapes was that it was a blank tape wholesale service started by a man named Ken Hayes, who also turned out to be the founder of the Gathering of the Vibes Festival, which took place in Bridgeport, Connecticut for a number of years. According to an article about DAT, D-A-T, tapes in Wired Magazine that was published on June 25th, 1997, quote, Ken Hayes, the deadhead tape trader, launched a mail-order business called Terrapin Tapes in 1992. So maybe I just can't find it, but Terrapin Tapes does not appear or did not appear to be a brick-and-mortar head shop. Uh, If you know otherwise, please reach out to me as I would love to learn more about this now-defunct service. And that's it for today's episode. I'd like to thank George for joining me today, Fish.net for their help with the fact check, and Fish.in for the amazing soundboard recording used in today's episode. If you enjoy Attendance Bias, please support the show by leaving a rating and a review of the show on your favorite podcast app, and follow Attendance Bias on social media, mostly Instagram and Twitter. Reach out and say hi, and I'm happy to send you a free sticker. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next week on Attendance Bias. Attendance Bias.